Have you ever read in the Genesis narrative and thought to yourself, what was it like for Adam and Eve to experience the, the fall? What must it have been like for them to know of one of their sons murdering another one of their sons? And then to have the thought, we did this. Like it's all our fault. And you know, Adam and Eve, they didn't just live 60 or 70 years, but the Bible tells us that people lived a lot longer back then. And, and from our understanding, Adam lived until Noah's dad. And so they could watch and watch and watch. And then not only did they see their son Cain murder their other son, but then they also saw their son Cain choose to walk away from the face of the Lord and live his life on his own without God. How could Adam and Eve, how could they endure? How could they keep going and face each day knowing we did that. And I think that the answer that we have in the scriptures is God's promise of the seed of the woman. There's going to be one who's going to come who's going to crush the serpent's head, meaning there's one who's going to reverse the curse. He's going to undo what the serpent brought about through tempting Adam and Eve there's one who's going to rescue human beings and bring a new and better Eden. I know, I'm convinced this was Adam and Eve's hope. Because even as we studied after God gave punishments to Adam, Adam's declaration to Eve was to name her, do you remember? Eve, which means the mother of all living. He knows that there's life that's going to come. But then I also believe this to be the case because of what we're going to see in a little while from Eve's lips herself. There is hope and trust that there is a seed of the woman, there is a serpent crusher that's going to come. But before we get to hear from Eve, I want to make sure that we know where we're at in the Genesis narrative here today. Last week we saw how Cain was faithless and we saw how Abel had faith and that was revealed in, their, uh, in that they gave sacrifices, but God, God did not accept Cain's sacrifice. And we find out in scriptures later on, it's because Cain didn't have faith. And so the emphasis last week, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And we need to live and walk by faith. But what does it mean to live by faith? What does it look like? Does it mean that we give physical sacrifices like what? Abel and Cain did? Not for us. In Romans 12, which we just read, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as, can you say this, these next two words? Living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This reminds me of even King David's words when he is repenting and turning from his sins of murder and adultery. And he says in his confession to God, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God wants our hearts, not just our actions. We must have faith, not just function. But then the question comes to us, what does it look like to be a living sacrifice and to walk by faith? In the text we're looking at today in Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 through 26, Moses shows us how Cain continues to live and then how Cain's lineage experiences consequences, negative consequences as a result of living your own way. It's like what Moses is doing here, I think Moses is giving us an anti-example. We can see what living for ourselves looks like, and in doing so, we can discover what it means to live by faith. Because then what Moses does in his writing is he jumps to Adam and Eve and then shows us what faith looks like. And he also shows us how that faith and the promise enables people to endure even when things are chaotic and don't make sense. This entire text reminds me of Romans 1, which we just got done reading. And we discovered that humans in their sinfulness suppress the truth about God and we embrace lies. We worship and serve created things around us in order to numb ourselves from the reality of God and the reality of his judgment. And this is precisely what I see from Cain. Do you guys remember what Cain's punishment is or what it was? He's going to be what? A wanderer and a fugitive or a wandering fugitive for the rest of his life. And instead of Cain asking for forgiveness and pleading for mercy from the Lord, he leaves God's presence. Cain, who just got done saying, it's going to be unbearable for me to be away from your face. See you later. What does that mean? I mean, he didn't really want God. He just wanted God's stuff. And so he walks away and Cain seeks to solve the problem of his aimless wanderings in his own wisdom. In all of this, before we read the text together, I want to give you the main idea of the sermon today, which is life is found in God, not in self-indulgent affluence. In other words, it's not found in suppressing the truth about God, and worshiping other things. Life is found in God. We cannot face the brokenness of this world and truly acknowledge it without him. We can't experience life and resurrection from the death within without God himself. So if you have your Bibles, make sure you open them up to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to read this lengthy text together, verses 17 through 24. Genesis 4, starting in verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. 
Zillah bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Life is found in God, not in self-indulgent affluence. I'm going to jump right in to the text. Cain's solution to the curse, I believe we see, is self-indulgence and affluence. So what did we say? What did we see in the text? God said it's going to happen to Cain for murdering Abel. What's the punishment? You're going, verse 12, you're going to be a what? Wanderer and a fugitive, or a wandering fugitive. We're also told that the ground is going to be even more difficult to work. And then after this punishment, we read, and Cain builds a city. Does that sound like wandering to you? Hmm, That's weird. Then he names the city after his son Enoch. Then Cain has grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, and so on. And then you get to Lamech, and we're told about his children. And the names of Lamech's children actually are names that relate to ideas of happiness. For example, Jubal is related to the Israelite word for jubilee. And Lamech's daughter, Nama, means pleasant, an idea of, of beauty. We see advancements also in husbandry, the arts, metallurgy, Cain. Cain has built a civilization with food, arts, and sciences. Does that sound like wandering? No, that doesn't sound like wandering. It, it actually sounds like God forgot to punish him, right? What's going on? You told him he was going to be a wandering fugitive, and look at all that he got. You see that? Did God forget? No. So what does this mean? In just a few verses, we see that God is punishing Cain, but we see it, we see it through the breakdown that's revealed through Lamech. But just for now, I want to emphasize something that I think is really important to understand about this term, wandering fugitive, and even how God punishes there can be the sense that wandering fugitive is just literal physical, okay? That you are literally going to wander around. But I think that it had more of the spiritual sense to it. That, that there's a restlessness that's going to be inside of Cain that he's never going to solve for the rest of his life. Now, if you think I'm over-spiritualizing that punishment, I just want you to think about the previous punishment that was mentioned earlier with Adam and Eve. When God warned them not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he said, in that day you eat of it, you will what? Oh, it doesn't just say die. Surely. Oh, yeah, I remember. Surely. 
you will surely die. Did they die? Is that a trick question? They, they didn't die physically, but they experienced death. Because ultimately, death is separation from the mercy and grace of God. And the only way to be reconciled with him is through his grace and mercy to bring you back, to forgive you and to cleanse you. We've talked about this in previous weeks. Did, did Adam and Eve experience death? Yes, surely, in that day. Did Cain experience wandering fugitive? Yes. There's a restless void that's inside. And now, so, so instead of, of being tempted to just look at externals and say, wow, Cain's doing pretty good without God. We should be thinking about the spiritual realities. And I, 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 I know that God has written this narrative on purpose because we as human beings tend to look at externals first, right? We judge books by their covers. We judge situations by saying, that looks pretty good. It looks like God isn't punishing I think I should be able to do that too. But it's dangerous to evaluate people based on the good things you see in their lives. We can, but we do. And I'm sure maybe some of you, maybe many of you have had this situation in your life before in your own heart where you think, why is God blessing them and not me? Why does that person who's not following after God, why do they seem so happy and I'm miserable over here? Any of you ever thought that before? But all the stuff they have could simply be ways to numb themselves to reality. The reality that their hearts are empty. I think this is what God wanted the wandering Israelites to keep in mind when they read Genesis for the first time. They're wandering in the wilderness, (laughs) there are cities that they're approaching. That seems nice. They're wandering in the wilderness and they're they're like, let's just go back to Egypt because at least we had food and slavery, but food. Let's just, why can't we be like them? Why does God seem to bless them? And yet what God is teaching the Israelites is that it is better to have God and wander physically than it is to have physical blessings and be wandering from God. Did you hear that? God is better. God truly does satisfy so that whether we have plenty or we're in amazing need, we have God. A while back, I was listening to a song that, from a group that my son, Elisha, listens to and was refreshingly surprised by uh, some of the lyrics in that song. And the song was actually confronting our current culture this, this, this idea that it brings out in the song is that we just want to mask every pain that we feel. And earlier in the song, the, the lyrics state that our pain, our human pain is deeper than what pills can solve. And so it, they're, they're bringing out this spiritual need that the world can't, can't fix. Then at a certain point in the song, we have these lyrics. They say, we're over-medicated complicating every little issue. Push a new prescription for each symptom or the sickness gets you. What do they mean when they say, or the sickness gets you? The sickness is, the, is that yearning 
that, 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 that understanding, that restlessness for something more. So let's just let's push a new prescription or the sickness will get you. Then the lyrics... Then the lyrics move on to give what seems to be a cultural mantra. If the fever isn't broken, double the dosage. Double the dosage. If the laceration's open, double the dosage. Double the dosage. And what the song is saying is, all the world can do is try to silence the pain of the soul. And that's what they continue to do. In our day, we're doing the same thing as Cain. Let's build this, let's do that, let's act this way, let's have this family, let's do this, let's have, let's, let's have medals and food and arts and sciences, let's do all those kinds of things. This actually reminds me of recently, Tracy and I were watching uh, a TV show. And in the episode, it got to a point of the show where they were beginning to emphasize certain things uh, that were LGBTQ issues. And I thought about turning the show off, but I kept it on because I wanted to hear how the character sought to defend himself. And in listening, the character said something like this to another person in the show. They said, we all have this void in us, and we're all seeking to fill this void. And the only way that I can, I can fill it is by living this out. And then the character went on and said, I mean, we can't totally fill the void, but we can at least try to fill it more. Does that make your heart ache to hear that? It reminds me of Ecclesiastes when the preacher writes, God has put eternity into man's heart. <laughs> God has put it there. Everybody has it there, and we can't get rid of it. The temporal can't fulfill us. Only God can. But we will try. <laughs> it, it, we will try to fill the eternal void by focusing our attention on the temporal world. And like Adam and Eve sowing fig leaves to cover their shame, Cain, he goes even further. I'm going to build a city. And I'm going to try to cover it here. And I'm going to name this city after my son, which, which would speak to there's a lasting name that's going to take place here, even after he dies. But let me ask you a question. Does that city exist today? It doesn't. And did Cain defeat the ground? Is he still alive today? He's not. All Cain could do at best was to distract himself and numb himself and double the dosage and double the dosage. Now, maybe for you, some of you might say, I don't feel that eternal void. And if that's you, I would just say you have done a scarily good job at deceiving yourself. Because temporal pleasures will not save you in the end. You were made for eternity. As the old saint from thousands of years ago said, our hearts are restless. And we will not rest until we rest in you. I pray you'd see the eternal God. You remember our study last week where we saw that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance? I brought that out in those certain verses. I think that's happening with Cain as well. What is, what is God doing with Cain and, and Cain's lineage? He's showing immense kindness. Does that mean God approves of what Cain is doing? What? No, not at all. 
But what God is doing is he's giving symbols, messages to point to his goodness, symbols of security like a city with arts and sciences and food. These kindnesses should cause Cain and his lineage to repent, to turn from their sin and to turn to the Lord. Do they? Not that we see. And so what does Romans 2 go on to say? God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, but because of your hard and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath where God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The same can be said for so many in our day as well. And I hope it's not true for you. But you could still say, what's so bad with Cain? It really does look like he figured out life and that he doesn't need God. He's got it covered. Well, let's move on to see Cain's consequences to his solution. A destruction of life and marriage. This narrative is so important for the wandering Israelites to read because we know that the Israelites didn't want to follow God all the time, right? Anytime, probably like with me, you read about the wandering Israelites and you get annoyed with them because for some reason we think we're not as bad as they are. But man, they complain a lot, right? And sometimes they would complain so much, God would give them what they wanted, which you might first think, yay, they got what they wanted. But was that, was that often good? No, it was often always bad, right? Later on in the Psalms, we read this about the wandering Israelites. He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. When they got what they wanted, what did they get? Leanness of soul. That's precisely what I think we see here with Cain. By the time we get to Cain's great, great, great grandson, Lamech, look at how far sin has gone. Yeah, I mean, there's a city. Yeah, there's agriculture and sciences and arts. But notice the problems that show up here. In verse 19, we should quickly see a problem. What does it say? Verse 19, and Lamech took what? Two. Wait a second. That's not okay. Now, some people will try to defend bigamy or polygamy, and they'll say, well, because God didn't directly confront like Abraham or David in his polygamy, then God's okay with it. Here's a little Bible study lesson. Just because something happens historically doesn't mean God approves of it taking place. And how do we know whether or not God approves of something? Because there's other portions of scripture that teach us what God thinks about these things. So, for example, in Genesis 2, we read after Adam and Eve, therefore. Now, this is actually Moses inserting this into the narrative, okay, and teaching what is the scenario. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now, some people might say, well, you know, I mean, we can take that... In a, in a different way, maybe figuratively, it could be wives, plural. No, you can't take it that way. Jesus, later on in his teaching, emphasizes this text, and he says, the two shall become one flesh. That's pretty specific, right? 
So, so listen, if God in a certain historical narrative, if he doesn't confront that polygamy there, is that God approving it or is that God being long-suffering and merciful? Long-suffering towards them, right? That, that's, that's how we should think about this. And what we discovered a couple of months ago, even talking about marriage, is that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. And as I preached, we saw that the marriage covenant is to be one of great depth and friendship and relationship where you can be vulnerable and unashamed and safe and loved by each other. Marriage is to be a covenant relationship that's beautiful. So when God doesn't confront people directly, like here with Lamech, That's not a sign that he approves. It's a sign that he is long-suffering. So here we see Lamech. He's the first person mentioned to be a bigamist, and Lamech's way leads to harm. So it shouldn't surprise us what comes next from him. Let's read his poem in verses 23 and 24 again. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Do you remember remember the first poem that's spoken to a woman in in Genesis? Remember how I kind of like jokingly saying, at last, right? This is at last! Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. There was joy, adulation, that that Adam, woman, I love her. And here's the second poem spoken to women. It's very romantic, right? Not at all. He's, he's saying, now, now one commentator, I read this past week, actually, I don't, I don't know how they came to this conclusion, uh, but said that they think that what Lamech is doing is he is saying he will go to whatever lengths to protect his wife, even kill people. Eh, maybe. But I don't think that fits the context here at all. Um, I think Lamech is only concerned about himself and his reputation. He's going to protect his reputation at all costs. And how does he protect his reputation? Revenge. Revenge is his friend. So if you hurt Lamech, he's going to hurt you. And he'll make it 77-fold. Other ways to translate this is 70 times 7-fold. And remember this. If Cain's revenge is 7-fold, it's actually God's vengeance on someone if they hurt Cain, if they kill Cain. What is Lamech saying about his power in comparison to God's power? He's more powerful than God. God's only going to do sevenfold? Oh, hear me. I will do worse to you. I will do 77-fold. Now, this tense usage in the Hebrew in the poetic form, it could actually be stating that Lamech is willing to kill a man or a young man. Or it could also be stating that he actually did do that. Okay, but either way, he's using a term that refers to men, and he's using a term that refers to boys. 
And he's like, I will kill anybody. Lamech is heartless. He's ruthless. And notice how sick this is. Because it's showing up in a context, in this context of Genesis, it's showing up in a context where everything appears to be happy and great and wonderful and pleasant and joyous. You know, think of the other names, Jubal, Jubilee, right? And so then we have this poem. It's like a song. I will murder you. Like, what? He's psychotic. Yeah? That's scary. This is like seed of the serpent kind of happiness that he has. So why is this poem in this narrative? Because we can be tempted to think when we look at externals, we can say, that looks good. That looks great. They have this. They have that. They have this. I want those kinds of things. But let me ask you a question. Would you like to have a neighbor like Lamech? Seriously, would you? Women, would you like to have a husband like that? Not at all. That city can look good. They can have food. They can have arts. I don't want to live by people like that. And you know what? We can look in our culture nowadays as well, and we can see so many smiling faces, can't we? So many people who seem fine, and we know they're pursuing all sorts of things. And we're like, there's got to be brokenness in there. And then, then you read studies on rates of death by suicide and studies on the rates of depression. And it just keeps going up. Are they really satisfied? No, they're just doubling the dosage. So, again, the wandering Israelites reading this. They should be thinking, yeah, we might be physically wandering. We are. But if we have God, we're not wandering. Because we have eternity set before us. Those people in those cities, they're the wanderers. They're the ones with the void. And that's what we ought to be thinking as well. If you have been saved by Jesus Christ, just like what the Apostle Paul, whether you face plenty or hunger, abundance or need, you can be content in all circumstances. Now, with that in mind, I want to get back to the question that I asked at the beginning of the sermon. What must it have been like for Adam and Eve? How could they endure watching sin and rebellion over and over and over again? Let's read verses 25 and 26 again. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. God's solution to the curse always is the seed of the woman. And that's what we see here in these verses. Verse 25 starts off with Adam and Eve coming together again physically. And this creates a contrast, by the way, with verse 17, where Cain knew his wife. So Cain knew his wife, and he has descendants. Adam, and Eve, Adam knew his wife, 
and they have descendants. What, what, what Moses is doing here is he's giving us a, a picture of seed of the woman and seed of the serpent. Okay? Now, when I say that, I'm not saying that everyone who came from Seth is perfect. That actually, I think, is what the Israelites thought about themselves in Jesus' day. And Jesus says to them, you are of your father, what? The devil. Okay, so just because you have that lineage doesn't mean that you are perfect and righteous. Okay, but it is it is a type. It is like an allegory. It's a sign what what Moses is doing here. Let's look at this contrast here. The serpent is at work. But what we've already learned through just these few chapters is that God always brings order from chaos. Right. And that chaos is never going to win. Right. So here we have in this story. They come together. And then Eve is pregnant and she gives birth to Cain, or she gives birth to Seth. Now, what's intriguing here is that Eve, when she speaks of the birth of Cain, all she can say is that God has given her a son. But do you notice what she says here? God has appointed for me another, what? Offspring. Offspring. That's the same word that's used in chapter 2 for the seed of the woman. He's given me another offspring another seed, instead of Abel. So what she's actually hoping in is that this promise of God is actually taking place. It has to take place because that's where her hope lies. Now, does Eve believe that Seth is the the seed? I don't know. I'm not sure she does. But I think she probably hopes he is. But Moses, in his writing, quickly moves from Seth to Seth's child. So clearly Seth's not the seed of the woman, but the seed is coming from this line. You get that? The seed is coming from this line of the seed of the woman, of Eve. Someday the seed's going to come. The future, future serpent crusher will come from the line of Seth. And so I find Eve's words here beautiful gloriously beautiful. She is the one who ate from the fruit of the tree, but her confidence in living is not found in herself. It's found in God's promise. God's promise and God's forgiveness of her that stabilizes her more than her sin breaks her. Can I say that again? Her confidence is in God's promise and forgiveness that stabilizes her more than her sin broke her. She trusts and hopes in the Lord. You know this kind of forgiveness? Do you know a forgiveness that is so powerful and great that you can acknowledge your sin and also rejoice in a God who has forgiven you and promised to be merciful and gracious? Even if you don't understand the circumstances, even if you don't understand why you have a rebellious child and other things are breaking around you, do you know the God in whom you can have absolute confidence and trust in? He brings order from chaos. He makes promises, and he will always fulfill his promises. And we don't understand. But those of us who have been set free can cling to him.
and trust. God is worthy to be trusted because his promises are always good and right. So Adam and Eve have Seth, and then we read of Seth's son, Enosh. And just like Lamech's children's names mattered, I think Enosh's name matters here. Remember, Lamech's children, their names are masking reality. Beauty, joy, happiness. But Enosh's name is a major contrast. I don't recommend you naming your children this, per se. Uh, this, This word in the Hebrew is closely associated to weakness. What did you name your child? Weakness. Wow. Poor guy. But there's a meaning for this. Why would you name your child weakness? Why would you name your child weakness? It's because we as human beings are weak. Right? That we are needy for God. And we're not going to fake it. We're not going to pretend that we don't need him. Seth isn't going to pretend that he doesn't need God. And so he names his son weakness. And do you notice what it says after that? At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Why? Because it was proclaimed to them. We've got nothing. We have nothing to offer God. We're the rebels. We're needy for him. We're weak. And this reminds me even of the New Testament teaching with the Apostle Paul. When the Apostle Paul talks about himself and he says, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul goes on and says, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, by the way, do you you see what he says? Therefore, most what? Gladly. How many of you love to boast in your weakness? But that's God's intent for his children. That we would be a people, that we even as a local church would be a people where we say, praise the Lord, it's only because of him. I would do this, 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 and this. I'd be just like Lamech covering up, but no, 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 I can't. I can't because because God has rescued me and he has shown me that I can boast in these weaknesses so that you can see how amazing my God is, how amazing my Savior is. And so Paul goes on, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. And it's not in his strength, it's in Christ's strength, right? And so he boasts. Seth names his son Weakness. That's actually a blessed name. And through this line of Enosh, eventually we get to Jesus. Jesus, who became weak for our sake, suffered on the cross and took the punishment that our sins deserved. Jesus, who didn't deny or run from what humans deserve, but revealed humanity's need and solved the need in himself. And on the cross, he crushed the serpent. 
And Jesus says to all people, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. To the people who are sick, he comes to heal. To the people who are weak, he gives rest. Maybe you have recognized your eternal need of your soul. Maybe there could be somebody or some many people here today that you would say, I know Jesus forgives, but he'll never forgive me because you think your sin is too great. Did any of you wonder about Lamech's revenge statement and think of Jesus? Anybody? Some people. The only other time that 70 times 7 comes up or 77-fold comes up, you know, many of you know where this is, right? It's Jesus talking to his disciples, and they say, how much should we forgive, seven times? And what does Jesus say? I, not seven times. Seventy times seven. In our flesh, in our sin, we have it so ingrained in us that revenge is the way. Even if we think God is forgiving, well, he's forgiving to a point, And then we can't pass that. Jesus completely shocks us. Gloriously so, doesn't he? Because he says, my way is not like Lamech's. My way is 70 times 7. Forgiveness. And that's good news for everyone. If you haven't trusted in Christ, that's good news for you. If you have trusted in Christ, that's good news for you. It's good news that our Savior actually saves. Jesus came not to get revenge, but to show eternal forgiveness and reconciliation. And as a result, Jesus says to all who follow after him, he says, we don't have to live for the kingdoms of this world anymore. Actually, we're set free from doing that. Where Lamech lived for this kingdom and making this world and having this stuff, what does Jesus tell his disciples? Seek first, what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. The things of earth that Cain lived for, the things of earth that we oftentimes live for. No, no, no. Don't live for that. Seek him first. And all these things will be added as God sees fit. So, are you suppressing the truth about God or calling on the Lord? If you know the Lord, are you turning back to the ways of Cain, looking to the world for meaning? Have you forgotten that your life is in the Lord, not in self-indulgent affluence? Remember, God keeps his promises. And like Adam and Eve, we can be living sacrifices, living by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, and rest in our serpent crusher, Jesus. And we always, always call on the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy of our praise, trust. And Lord, I ask that you would work in our hearts and minds and souls to see and to embrace the realities of who you are to not live just for the things of this earth, but to live for you, to know that our worth is not in what we own, 
but in Jesus Christ, the one that you have sent. And eternal life is knowing you. Oh God, please work in us that we might increase in our repentance. We might increase in our gratitude for your kindnesses and goodness. And for those who are here who don't trust you, oh God, I ask that they would be, that you would work in their hearts to save them, to rescue them, to show them your kindnesses, not just common graces, but saving graces. To you be the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Amen.